0: O God, who didst wonderfully create and yet more wonderfully restore the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity, thy Son, Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the Collect appointed for today, January the 2nd, 2022. So welcome to a new year. Hopefully this will be the year that we finally emerge from the morass that we have been in for two years now <clears throat> into a new world. <laughs> there are certain days when, when I feel like this just can't go on forever and then it seems like there's a determination that it will go on forever. Um, we, we have put life on pause for two solid years, I can't imagine having small children. If you do, then I feel so sorry for you because I don't know how to navigate this mess with small children. Um, it, it has to have an enormous impact on them to lose two years of their formative time to, to this virus. And so I, I, I'll, I pray for you this year. I hope that, that you are moving into 2022 with, with hope and with joy and optimism that, that, that you do believe that we're going to be able to move forward and that we're going to go back to normal <laughs> not a new normal but back to normal is my hope so we're we're struggling i think with some of this stuff it's been um a long year in our lives it's been a good year in a lot of ways there've been other things that have been really difficult you know um not just wills um injury and all that but but so many other things this year has been it's been hard but it's been filled with a lot of joy because it's been filled with A lot of people, some of those people we've been friends with for a long time, but then people that we had not had been, were friends with a long time ago, (laughs) and we've sort of reconnected and rekindled those relationships, and then new people as well have come into our lives through all of this. And so I'm thankful for all the benefits that we received during that period of time to see God's people come together and pray and then to see a sort of miraculous healing, not just sort of miraculous, I didn't mean it that way. Um, It's been an interesting year, to say the least. And so I'm excited about moving into a new year. I I just, I believe God's going to do great things. And I believe that we're going to see some movement of the Spirit. Um, And and I'm I'm hopeful for the state of Christianity uh, as we move forward. It, It looks bleak and black at the moment. But I believe that God is strengthening his churches. He's purified his church and he's bringing people together and doing a new thing. That's just my belief for 2022. I hope that we see that. I hope we see that very thing happen, that we see the Lord um, do great things and great things in your life, great things in the church and great things in the world. I I pray for a a new great awakening because we need it. (laughs) We absolutely do. We've lived in a fearful place for too long. And it's time to move into hope and and move into the future. <clears throat> and so I hope that um, that this is a, a fabulous year for you as far as your walk with the Lord is concerned, and, then, and that He blesses you in every single way, beginning with Himself, because that's the important place to be, and that's what we're going to see in this passage from Jeremiah. And, and I think it's important for us to to hear. What Jeremiah has to say, and what he's speaking to is an exile community, a community that's been exiled in Babylon. He is going to tell, he's already told them, I'm sorry, um, that that they're going to be there a long time, to go ahead and settle down there and do all the things that are necessary to settle down and be in that place, because this is not going to be a quick move. The, there's a word for it in anthropology, and that, that word is liminality, L-I-M-I-N-A-L-I-T-Y. And so what it describes, is a movement from one form of, of being and thinking into another form of being and thinking and and Christianity and the has we've been we've all lived in a liminal state for the last couple of years We, we wanted to get through this thing. I can remember having conversations with people in in uh, March of 2020 about they thought God was going to do something extraordinary at Easter and we were going to be able to move on with our lives that things were going to break at that point. And and it was a fond hope, but there's a sort of a grief involved in that. Um, there's the there's the the idea of grief um, that it, Elizabeth Kubler Ross gave us those stages of grief, and and there's a denial phase, there's a bargaining phase, and all that kind of stuff. And so I think we as a society and we as people have gone through that over the last couple of years. We're in this liminal state, and, and, and we're the we we're betwixt and between. We've been moved from one place to another, and it's an uncomfortable change in our lives. Um, there, there are a lot of uh, societies that have rituals whereby a, a, a A male child goes from being a boy to a man, and there's a ritual that moves them from that one place into another. But what has to happen is they have to move into and be forced, in some cases, into a liminal state where they're no longer allowed to be the child they were before. And it's incumbent upon them to learn how to become a man and to provide for yourself and fend for yourself in the world. And so that's where this this term liminality came from, is to describe that movement— and so that movement from being a boy to a man is an important thing, and we're going to see that here with Jesus. But, but also, I think it, what we see in Jeremiah's word of encouragement here to the people in exile in Babylon is to encourage them in their liminal state that there will be a return to where they were before, back to Jerusalem, but it will in some ways be a different thing. So they won't possess it in the same way. And you probably have experience of that in your own life, where you've where you've gone through some uh, situation where you've lost something that was dear to you, and and that you got it back in some way, and, and so you were delighted in a different way in the thing you had lost, but received back, and so you were changed in that process, whether the thing or the person was changed in the process or not, you were, and the way that you perceive that was, and so one of the things I think that we need to to see in that is is that, for instance, in the in this case, where you're talking about an exile community coming back to the place they're exiled from, then they receive it with a new gladness, in a way where they had taken it for granted before, and now there's a gladness and a joy in having that possession again, and a determination to possess it in a different way, to change the way I think about things in order to perceive them rightly and to possess them rightly. And it's part of what... um, Solomon encouraged in the book of Ecclesiastes, he, he encourages the reader to see all these temporal things, these earthly things, in the right way. It doesn't mean that they're evil by any stretch of the imagination. What it means is they can't be ultimate, and, and that's the liminal Phase is to to move us beyond that. Those things that we took for granted. Now, if we possess them again, we'll possess them with great joy. It's it's the move of Job's life, right? So he loses everything, and he gets back everything he lost, and he gets in fact more than that. But but it's less important to him now. It doesn't mean the same thing because he had to go through that liminal phase. And so, we can do that well, or we can do it badly. We can panic, and we can cling to the past. We can demand. We can, we can have unrealistic expectations. We can, we can deal with this denial and everything, bargaining and everything else. And then when God does a new thing in our lives, are we still clinging to the old thing or are we prepared to move with him? If he's taken something away from, from us, then what we have to say to him is, is Lord, I give it back to you. The, the feeling that I have that's invested in it, the importance of this thing is obviously too great. And I needed to have it taken away in that way. And so here we we see the hopefulness and the uh, encouragement the prophet gives to this exile community in order to encourage them to get through. He gives them a vision of what will be. Thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations, which would be an incredibly difficult thing to do if you're stuck in exile in Babylon. The chief of the nations would be God. It would be the people. It would be Israel. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. So the encouragement is is that ultimately this exile will be over and God will gather his people from the ends of the earth. Not just the ones that are in Babylon, but there's going to be a greater end gathering than that. There's going to be his people will be gathered from the farthest parts of the earth. And that would include people like us, and it would include the mission that Jesus gave to the church called the Great Commission. And so we, we are among those, but among these also, he says, the blind and the lame, the pregnant, and she who is in labor at that moment. And so he, he's going to gather everyone in to the kingdom. The blind and the lame would typically be left out because they would be impure at some level. And so, so God's going to gather the men, and how does he gather the men? Well, Jesus heals them. Um, But it's not a mark of God's disfavor that you have these conditions. And that's exactly what what Jesus says about the man born blind in John 9 when he's asked who who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born this way. And Jesus says neither of those things is the answer to what's going on. This happened to him in order that God's glory might be displayed right now in front of you by the opening of this man's eyes. And so that, that's the thing is, is that, that we have to look at things through Jesus' eyes, which is to say these things are not accursed. Difficulties in your life are not a curse of God on your life, and, and they're not to be called unclean for that reason. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I'll make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. So God speaks of, of the way that they will come back. They'll come back with weeping, but it's a different kind of weeping from the weeping that they left with. It's a totally different thing. It's weeping for joy versus weeping over sin and weeping over judgment. And so it would please for mercy from them. He will bring them back. And he makes the way straight, and he makes everything exactly the way it needs to be in a way that the wilderness wanderings were not. I'll make them walk by brooks of water. There'll be water along the journey in a straight path in which they will not stumble. He's a father. And we see that same metaphor about being a father in Hosea's prophecy, because he says that I'm the one who taught them to walk. I took Israel by the hand and taught them to walk. And, And there's this beautiful symbolism in that this a tenderness that he is Father God. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. This is exactly what Jesus said, right? He came to the lost sheep of Israel and says that he is the good shepherd, and he will bring others into the flock. I mean, he, he couldn't be any clearer that, that this is the mission that he's claiming to be on, that he himself is God, because there's only one good shepherd, and that's God. And he says his mission was to the lost sheep of Israel, to bring them in, in order that then he could go to the nations and proclaim to them. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young, of the flock, and the herd. So the promise is this is bucolic blessedness, prosperity that they'll have when they come back to the land. And, and it will be different from that which came before because they will be different people than those who had possessed the land before. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the Lord, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. And that's the, that's the way of, uh, of, of change, and it's the change that we need to commit to in our own lives. It's difficult to do that, and that's the reason God has to shake our lives up sometime in order that. We can be characterized as those who are satisfied with the goodness of God, and they had to lose everything in order to be satisfied with his goodness. They were not satisfied. That's the reason they didn't give the land its rest for 500 years by keeping the Sabbath year commandments. It's because they were not satisfied with his goodness. And again and again through the prophets, that's exactly what he tells them, is that you're not satisfied with me. And the proof of that is you break my law and you seek to have more and more. And, you, and in order to have more and more, you, you break the law. You fail to follow my commandments because the, you show in your actions what you want most, what you're most satisfied in. And what Solomon tells us, and what we know to be true, is nothing on this earth can satisfy us. We were made for that relationship with God. Until we have that, we'll never be satisfied. It's that God-shaped hole in my life that only He can fill. We try and stuff other things in there, but it, but it won't work. No matter how hard we try, no matter what it is that we're satisfied with today, we won't be satisfied with it next week. It won't be enough, or it won't be quite right. We will have seen the thing for what it was, maybe, and realized that, that no way can we be satisfied in that. Everything that's less than God is less than satisfying. It can never be the replacement for God in our lives because we were created for him to fill that void. In the gospel today, what we see is is the only glimpse we get of Jesus as a young person in the in any of the gospels. We just don't have any of that. It's, these things get made up later, these other, quote, gospels. To fill the void, <laughs> the void of, well, we don't have, why don't we not have any information about Jesus? And so we get these weird stories that, that appear in these apocryphal gospels of Jesus like killing people, vaporizing them and things like that. It's very strange stuff. It, it doesn't fit with this at all. And so what we see here is, is Jesus being satisfied only in the Father, and there's only one place he will ever be. He says, now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. That's a part of being Jewish, that if you're close to the land, then you're, then you're required to be there. You're keeping the law of Moses by going to the Feast of the Passover. It, it's an important thing. It's not just their custom. It, it's what they did in compliance with the law of God. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. I mean, when I saw that this time, I first thought was sort of home alone, right? The, the family leaves, and they're not aware that they've left their son behind. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. In other words, there's a, there's a large group of pilgrims who have traveled together, and they assume that, well, he's just with another part of the family, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So they, they've they gone up at 12, and I want to tell you something. If you didn't listen to the daily podcast that I did a few days ago on the um, the Talmud, then you didn't hear this. And The Mishnah, which is the first half of the Talmud, um, describes the educational process for a young Jewish boy in the time of Jesus. At five years old, one's fit for the scripture, the study of the Torah. At ten years, the Mishnah, the oral Torah, the interpretations. At thirteen, for the fulfilling of the commandments. At fifteen, to make rabbinic interpretations of the Talmud. At eighteen, the bride chamber. And at twenty, pursuing a vocation at 30 for authority, which is the ability to teach others. And so at the time, it's, it's really interesting because at the time of Jesus, the two great rabbinic schools of that day were the schools of Hillel and his grandson Gamaliel, was Paul's instructor, and we see Gamaliel in multiple places in the gospel. He's the one who says, hey, look, many have arisen before and claimed to be somebody, and that, that, that movement just flamed out. If, if it's of God, we can't stop it. And and if it's not of God, then there's no reason for us to take any action to stop it. That's Gamaliel. He is, he is Paul's mentor, and, and he represented one of the two great rabbinic schools. These are both Pharisaical schools, so they both belong to the people that, the, that consider themselves to be Pharisees. And so the other one is the House of Shammai. And so the, the, there was great um, argument between these two schools at the time. And so the funny thing was is that they that one of the sayings was that Elijah the Tishbite would never be able to reconcile the disciples of Hillel and Shammai. That's the antagonism between the two, of them. but their teachings form the the oral law plus the argumentation for the oral law is based on these two rabbinic schools that are that are at their height at the time of Jesus. And so it's this odd confluence of great Jewish scholarship, and into that moment comes Messiah. So the the tradition of the elders goes back mostly to these guys who are interpreting a tradition that had been handed down to them, but, but we see these guys there. And so Jesus comes into this time of great rabbinic teaching and great rabbinic scholarship in Jerusalem, and these are the people that he's with. That he is there in the temple discussing the law with these the two greatest rabbinic schools that are ever in Judaism. It's an amazing thing that it all comes together in this moment, except for, well, God superintended that. So <clears throat> they find him among the teachers listening to them and asking questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And that's consistently the kind of language we see in, in the Gospels. People were amazed— astonished, whatever word you want to put on it, about what Jesus did, but also what he taught. He teaches with authority and not like the scribes was what they said of his teaching. And, and what it means is, is that, that he had a unique authority because the Spirit was in him in a unique way as not only the giver of the law, but the word of the law itself. He was the embodiment of the law, the embodiment of the Torah. And so he, he knew things about the law and its interpretation that they could never know because he was there. And so he's speaking with these rabbis. It doesn't say that they agreed with him or that they were brought into a new understanding. It just says they were amazed at his understanding and his answers. They may not liked them, but they were amazed because they were defensible answers and that's the important thing in Judaism is, is that when you're its argumentation is perfectly fine it's encouraged in fact that that two people should study the law together because those two perspectives then can can bring about deeper understanding it through the process of arguing your point sort of a debate kind of a thing and so it's an important thing but you've got to support those things nobody's going to be amazed if you're just talking out of the top of your hat and so Jesus is amazing those who heard him the rabbis and those there with his understanding and his answers and when his parents saw him they were astonished his mother said to him son why have you treated us so behold your father and I've been searching for you in great distress and if you've ever had a, had a had a situation in your life where you didn't know where one of your children was you understand the great distress i mean maybe you even understand it when you had a dog that ran away but but they, they, they had to have been in great distress, not knowing where this son was, especially the one who was the son of the promise of God. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I mean, you're wasting your time looking anywhere other than here. This is, if I'm in Jerusalem, this is where I will be. And it's true throughout his life. It's true during the period of time that that is uh, spoken of in the Gospels, that Jesus, is, when he's in Jerusalem, that's where he goes even though he's rejected and despised there. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them because your father and I have been searching for you in great distress, and didn't you know that I'd be in my father's house? And so that's the part that confused them. What What do you mean in your father's house? Your father and I are right here, and we don't live here. We live in Nazareth. And they didn't understand, so they went down. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. He was the kind of child he he was supposed to be. So remember what I said about what the Talmud said about the education of a young Jewish boy that at ten, that at five he was able to study. Of the Torah, and then he was able to study the Mishnah at ten. And at thirteen, he should have learned enough that now he can take responsibility for the law himself. And so here you get this twelve-year-old Jesus who is working out in discussion with these rabbis. He's proving himself to be knowledgeable about all of this in a way that that he shouldn't yet be. He has not been um, bar mitzvahed, and so that he's showing something. About himself that that proves something to some people but at the same time he still recognizes that within Judaism he can't just strike out on his own at 12 even though he's an extraordinary 12 year old um, but he's submissive to his parents so even in this you see Jesus this grand condescension and his great humility of being submissive to his earthly parents and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. It's because he was doing things the right way. He was doing things the prescribed way in a Jewish home. He, he didn't uh, lord this over them. He submitted to them. <laughs> in the epistle lesson, I mean, the, this first chapter of Ephesians is, is clearly one of the most beautiful uh, chapters in all of Scripture about who God is, who Jesus is, and where we fit in the grand scheme of things. He says, "Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ," and, and indeed, blessed be He. That that that's a typical Jewish blessing, a typical Jewish saying, except for when it comes to Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and, and blessed be that God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, Paul, that's some lofty rhetoric, but he uses it all throughout uh, Ephesians, frankly. He talks about uh, preaching the gospel in chapter 3, talks about preaching the gospel, the mysteries that have been hidden for ages past to the rulers in the heavenly places. And then he's going to talk later about the... um, full armor of God and when he does that he's going to talk about that you're not fighting against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and these rulers and, and in the heavenly places and so there's a there's a cosmic idea to everything that Paul says particularly in Ephesians so we've got these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places so we have much that's been gathered up and stored up for us, because even though Jesus refers to the temple as, his, as the, my Father's house, remember what he says later in John, whenever they're in the uh, upper room for the Passover meal? He says that in my, house are, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. It's important that we recognize these things, that we do have these blessings in the heavenly places. These things are stored up for us. We can partake of part in part now, but but as long as we're in the flesh, we can't fully partake of the blessings that he has given to us, even as, he says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So before he ever brought things into being, you were known and you were chosen by God to be his child. I, I don't... I can't imagine anything greater than that knowledge of knowing that before God created anything, He knew us, and He called us, and He loved us, and destined us to be His children, that, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. That's the standard. We're chosen in order that we would be holy and blameless before Him, and that's, that, that, that is largely because of Jesus because his righteousness is the only real righteousness we have. But, but we're to pursue holiness and righteousness. We're to pursue those things in our lives. Once he set us free from the law of sin and death, we are set free then to be satisfied in his goodness. And the, one of the ways that we show that we're satisfied in his goodness is to keep his law. It's to live the way he has prescribed that those created in his image should live. In love, he says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In other words, he always knew this would happen, and he willed that it would happen, which means because he's God, it will happen. God's will will be done, and that's the reason that he tells us to pray that his will be done, because if we're praying that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then, then we're praying for a dead certainty, because it will be done we just what we're expressing in that prayer is is that we want it to be done and it becomes our will as well because we believe in the goodness of God but to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved so the reason that his that he has done all these things is for the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us and the beloved. So it, it's, it, it all comes down to, he makes much of us in order that we might make much of him in our lives, in our worship, in everything we do. He says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Because I've heard about not that you just not just that you believe, but that you also have love for the saints. And because of that, then, then I give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, because you're proving by your life that you are satisfied in him and that you care and that you're taking on the character of Christ himself. Uh, I remember you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, he'd open the eyes of your heart by the power of his Holy Spirit that you would begin to know more and more of him as you walk more and more in what you do know. You can't just know it. You've got to walk in what you know. And as long as you're walking in what you know, as long as you're loving him and loving uh, your neighbor as yourself, then He'll. He, Paul says, I pray that he would open your eyes to more and more truth and knowledge in him. But the purpose of that is not to know, it's to do and to be. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what's the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? Paul says, I want you to know these important things. Right? What's the hope to which he's called you? What is the hope? It's eternal life in Jesus Christ, in which we participate now through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And then, so that's one thing. Second thing, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So he wants you to know that the treasure awaits you. This is the inheritance to which you were called. You have a treasure ahead, and the treasure is the kingdom of God itself and life in the kingdom of God, the blessed life in the place where god's will is done and what's the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might so what is the power toward us who believe well that power is peace joy love it's all those things that paul talks about in galatians when he talks about the fruit of the spirit it's the participation in the life of the trinity now that that we've been brought into the dance of the trinity into the love of the trinity because of jesus he brought us in and then gave us the holy spirit so that we can fully participate in that life of the trinity that blessed life that exists only within the trinity we have been given this great inheritance do we get the vision that Jeremiah laid out? Do we get the vision that Ezekiel lays out in uh, Ezekiel 47 and 48? Do we get the vision laid out ahead in Revelation twenty-one, twenty-two, of the blessedness of the life that awaits us? And can we begin through the power of that vision in our own lives, capturing it, holding it with all our heart, that we could truly pray because of jesus and because what he has shown us about the father can we truly pray your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and pray that with the deepest longing that says only maranatha come lord jesus because we know him to be perfection and we are satisfied in his goodness